Uh, Do you think God loves you? You bet. Do you feel loved by God? (laughs) That's exactly right. We might answer yes when things are going well, but what about today? What about today when the grass crunches underfoot, when the paddocks are full of dust? What about when someone in your family, someone you love, gets a terrible diagnosis from the doctor? Do you think God loves you? (laughs) What about when you've been laid off and the landlord has just put up the rent again? Do you feel loved by God? Uh, Today we're kicking off a new series. We're hearing God's word through the prophet Malachi. Uh, This series was going to take us up to the week before Christmas Malachi's message is God loves his people, but it's written at a time when God's people doubt God's love for them. Because of their situation, they've become half-hearted in their love for God. They've become half-hearted in their trust in God. They've become half-hearted in their worship of God. I reckon Malachi is going to be a great book for us to hear because I reckon despite some of our claims of confidence just then, there are many times when we don't feel loved by God. We we need to know God's love for us, don't we? And if you've been a Christian for some time, you might be getting dry in your relationship with God. It's also a really good book for us to read in the lead up to Christmas, but we'll find out more about that in chapters three and four. All right, so let's meet Malachi. Malachi is a prophet. God spoke to his people through Malachi. So have a look at verse one, Malachi 1.1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now we aren't told when Malachi was around, but based on what he says, Malachi most likely spoke about 450 years before Jesus. So where are we up to in God's story? Uh, The timeline I've just put up on the screen is based on God's big picture. So if you're in growth group, you're all over this. This should be just revision for you. Uh, If you're not, well, you should join a growth group. All right. So David was king of Israel about a thousand years before Jesus. David's son is Solomon, and because of their sin, after Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. Uh, The northern kingdom, it takes the name Israel. The northern kingdom continues for about 200 years. It's destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. Judah continues until it's conquered by the Babylonian Empire. In 586 BC, the Babylonians smash Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. A whole lot of the Judeans are taken into exile, removed from their homeland as prisoners of war. The reason for this invasion, it's not merely the greed and aggression of empire. It's God's judgment. Israel and Judah have turned their back on God and Assyria and Babylon are used by God to punish his people. But God is merciful and starting around 537 BC, some of the exiles return to Jerusalem. They return to rebuild the temple and the city. Uh, This history is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and also in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah we heard from just earlier this year. Malachi seems to come just a little bit after that time, so probably about 450 years before Jesus. So thinking about how we see God's kingdom throughout the whole big picture of the Bible, those categories we see in God's promise to Abraham, God's people in God's place, 
under God's rule and blessing, at the time of Malachi, God's people, are the Israelites, returned from exile. They're again living in God's place and they've got a temple and a priesthood. But what about God's rule? Well, there's no sign of a Davidic king on the horizon. At this time, they're ruled by the Persian Empire. And so in some ways, the exile hasn't really finished. Uh, they, the, the people haven't really returned and their hearts definitely haven't returned. Which is why God sends his prophet Malachi to remind God's people of his wholehearted love for them and to get them loving God again. And in many ways, the bold statement in verse 2 is like a heading for the whole book. So have a look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. God has loved, God does love his people. And this should be obvious. God is speaking to them. And even though they've been punished through exile, he's brought them back to the land. They've got a rebuilt temple where they can offer sacrifices. Their sin can be atoned for. They can be reconciled to God. But at the same time, they don't have a son of David on the throne. Things aren't as good as they were in the time of David and Solomon. And so they respond, verse 2 again, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now, When you write something down, you can't always communicate tone. There's no emojis in this verse. It's also, emojis aren't all that good either, are they? So that's why you never have difficult conversations via text or email. So in verse 2, think about it. Does Israel speak like we read in the Psalms? Please, God, show us your love again. Or are they talking back like an entitled brat? Really? Really, God, it doesn't look like you love us. From how things go in the rest of Malachi, I reckon Israel's being snarky. God declares his love for them, but they talk back to him. God's people are snarky, they back chat to God, which in human relationships stirs up anger, but God doesn't blow his top. God doesn't give up on them. Instead, God continues to declare his love and shows them how his love isn't just words but it's seen in what he's done. Verse 2 continues. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Now, these are pretty harsh words. We need to get a bit more context. We've got to go back almost to the start of the story to Genesis. We've got to work out who this Jacob and Esau are and what they've got to do with Israel and Edom. Uh, In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham and Sarah they will become a great nation. But they've got zero children and they're well beyond childbearing years. So where's this nation going to come from? But God promises and decades later, he gives them a child, a son named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebecca and they conceive twins. Uh, This is a difficult pregnancy. Even with the medical wisdom we have today, pregnancy can be difficult and Twins more than doubly so. 
So you can imagine what it was like in ancient times. During this difficult pregnancy, God speaks. God explains not only what's going on in Rebecca's womb, but what this means for the promise to Abraham. So I'm going to put it up on the screen, Genesis 25. The Lord said to Rebecca, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. No wonder Rebecca's having a tough time. It's not just twins, but warring nations in her womb. Now, it's that last bit that's really important. The older will serve the younger. This is God being God, doing things the opposite of what we assume. In the ancient world, the firstborn son gets all the benefits. I'm the firstborn son. I reckon it should still be this way. But in the ancient world, the firstborn son would inherit the bulk of his father's wealth. And in the case of the descendants of Abraham... This means receiving the promises of God. But God's word in Genesis 25 is he's going to do the opposite. The younger twin brother will receive God's promises. God has chosen the younger over the older. And when they're born, the older twin is called Esau and the younger is Jacob. And then going back to Malachi, Jacob is also known as Israel, his nation is the Israelites. Esau is known as Edom, his nation is the Edomites. And so more than a thousand years later, these, those twins who've been wrestling in Rebecca's womb are, are now nations at each other's throats. That's the background. The big question we'll wrestle with today is why did God choose Jacob over Esau? But in Malachi's day, the question wasn't, why did God choose Israel? But how has God loved us? God's answer is, have a look at the fate of Edom. Both of you had the same start, not just brothers, but twins. And in some ways, your history has been paralleled. Both suffered under the Babylonians. Though actually Edom didn't do quite as badly as Israel. But God says, this is how you'll know my love for my people. Israel will be restored, but Edom will be wiped out forever. And it happened. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were gradually overtaken by a people called the Nabataeans. And by the time we get to the 300s BC, the nation of Edom, and in fact, even a recognizable, recognizable ethnic or people group was no more. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And as this prophecy became reality, God's people would see it and praise God. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, I reckon some of us are unsettled by this. Maybe you're not wanting to cry out, great is the Lord. Maybe you're not quite sure you like what this passage says. Uh, This passage raises questions about the doctrine of election or predestination, what the Bible teaches about election, God's loving choice, can hurt our heads. It raises big questions, and we're going to be looking at that now. But most of all, I don't want us to have, have our heads hurt by what the Bible teaches. I want us to be like God's ancient people so we can join in the praise of our great God. So back to our big question. Not so much Israel's question, how have I loved us, how have I loved you, though we will get back to that. But our big question is, 
Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did God choose Israel and not Edom? Especially when you know the context, Genesis 25. We're talking about twins. And God's choice that the older will serve the younger, God made that choice before they were born. They're both equally sons of Isaac. But Jacob is loved, Esau hated. Uh, One way people think you can solve this dilemma is thinking what's actually going on is God looks into the future. God looks at the choices Esau and Jacob will make in the future and he sees that in the future Jacob's going to be a good bloke and Esau a dirty, rotten sinner. But no, you, you read the story of Esau and Jacob and they are both sinners by nature and by action. God's love isn't based on looking into the future that one's going to be more lovable or more faithful or more religious than the other. No, God made the choice before they'd been born and history goes out and proves how rotten they both are. For some of us, what seems unfair is that Esau isn't loved. Surely, we think, surely they're both worthy of God's love. But like every single person, Esau and Jacob are both sinners. They're both sinners by nature and once they're born by their behavior the great mystery the real question isn't why does god hate esau esau is a sinner he turned his back on god like you and me he deserves god's punishment i can explain why god hated esau which why he receives the punishment he deserves the thing i can't explain is why god loves jacob this is the real mystery why does god love anyone Why is anyone chosen to be his people? This is the big question of election or predestination. Now, some people think, uh, so we've already talked about, some people think God's looking towards the future. Some people think, oh, well, actually, what's going on with Esau and Jacob? It actually doesn't have anything to do with the question I'm raising. They'd say, well, God's not actually choosing Jacob for salvation. What he's doing is he's choosing Jacob to be the one through whom the promised saviour will come. It's not about his salvation, but about the birth of the saviour. And that is half true. Part of God's choice of Jacob is that his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel and through him, Jesus, the promised saviour, would be born. But we must not separate what God puts together. In Malachi 1, God's choice of Israel and his non-choice of Edom means eternal wrath on Edom. And even more than this, uh, in Romans 9, Paul reflects on the story of God choosing Jacob and he quotes Malachi 1 to answer a question explicitly about individual salvation. So please grab your Bible, turn it to Romans 9. If you're using one of these black Bibles, it's page 787. I'm going to spend the rest of our time in Romans chapter 9. And I want you to turn there because this might be a new idea or you might have been told that the Bible teaches something different and I want you to see for yourself, check what I am saying is what the Bible says. You found Romans 9? Great. The issue in Romans 9 is this. If Jesus is Israel's Messiah, if he is the fulfilment of all of God's promises to Israel, then... Why haven't loads and loads, the vast majority of ethnic Jews, why haven't they in the first century, why haven't they come to faith in Jesus? So read with me from verse 1. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 1. 
I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I, this is Paul, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Do you get the dilemma? All the promises of God belong to Israel. They are loved by God. Why haven't they received salvation in Jesus? Paul's answer digs deep into the Old Testament. He gives example after example to show that since the time of Abraham, God's people have never been defined by genetics, but by promise. It's never been about nationality, but God's choice. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word is pale, so God hasn't given up on any of his promises, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not all Descended from Israel are Israel. Not everyone with Abraham's DNA, not everyone who is ethnically Jewish, not all of them are true Israel. In fact, Galatians 3 says, what makes someone a child of Abraham, a member of the people of God, it's not about ethnicity, but faith in Jesus. Galatians 3, 7, those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have faith, Jew and Gentile, are children of Abraham. It's it's faith, not ethnicity, that unites you to God's people. So not all descended from Israel are Israel. What makes the difference? Why are some saved and not others? Well, let's go back to Romans 9 and Jacob and Esau. Read with me from verse 10. Not only that, But Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, and this is the quote from Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In his deep wisdom and for his glory's sake, God chose to show his love to Jacob and to the people of Israel in Malachi's day. And Paul's point is, God doesn't change. Just as he chose Jacob and not Esau, God continues to show his love in saving sinners. No one deserves it. If we were left to our own devices, we'd all be on the judgment side of the story. We'd all be on the Esau side. But God mercifully pours out saving love on some, giving faith and new birth by the Spirit, rescuing from the kingdom of darkness and adopting them into his family. And he does this with people from every nation, Jew and Gentile. 
Now, when you spend time thinking about this, this is the kind of stuff that can do your head in. But the point of what the Bible's saying is not to hurt our head, but to feel, overwhelm our hearts. You think about, I cannot fathom God's love. I know what I've been like, what I've done. I'm a horrible sinner. I know my heart runs from God. But God's love is so big, he reaches down and rescues me. Do you know this love of God? Now in Romans 9, Paul is mainly applying this idea to his own people. His big question is not about Jew and Gentile. At this point, he's mainly saying, asking, why is it that so many born into Israel have not received salvation? And the answer is, it's, it's what God's always done. We heard it in our Genesis reading as well, didn't we? You'll, you'll hear some hints of that in our, what we're about to read. What matters for salvation isn't our effort, but God's mercy. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And Paul's discussion of this topic keeps on going. Uh, so I can encourage you, keep reading Romans and reflecting on Malachi. If, if what we're talking about today is raise question, let's chat over lunch, let's catch up during the week. Although I think this is often head-hurting, the point of this part of the Bible, the point of Malachi 1 and Romans 9, is to know God's love. But before we get there, I just want to briefly deal with two objections. Uh, once I heard uh, an illustration about the doctrine of election, and the picture was, think of salvation like a door. On the door, it's got a sign with a question. You come up to the door, the question says, will you choose Jesus? And if you walk through the door, if you choose Jesus, then you'll see a sign on the other side says, chosen by God. The point of the picture is that God chooses to save those who choose him. And it seems fair enough. We like that illustration because it sounds like I'm in control and we love being in control. But it's not what the Bible says. What matters isn't human desire, but God's mercy. A second objection is, if God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, then then why evangelise? Why tell people about Jesus? God's going to save who he wants. Leave it up to him. The opposite is actually true. The reason we have confidence to tell people about Jesus is because we know God saves sinners. We can tell people the good news that salvation is in Jesus. We can call them to trust in Jesus, the only way of salvation, And we do this knowing God, knowing God loves to save sinners because he reached down and he saved me. And this is where we we want to finish. Do you know God loves you? If you're here and you don't know though, if you can't say amen, if you don't know Jesus' love, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus. Look, all of this talk about God's choice can be confusing. You might think that, oh, okay, right, so the question now for me to ask is, am I chosen by God? That's, that's the wrong approach. The right questions to ask are, am I a sinner? Am I like Jacob and Esau and the whole world deserving of God's judgment? Do I need a saviour? And is Jesus that saviour? And if you answer yes to those questions, if you know you need Jesus, then today you can trust in him and know God's love because God loves to save sinners. And if you're already part of God's people... How do you know God's eternal love? Look to Jesus. Look to the the cross, the empty tomb. 
On the cross, we see God's salvation and his judgment come together. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath we deserve, the eternal wrath that Eden faced, the one that we deserve, and he did it so that we can be brought into God's people, the true children of Abraham. We know God's love, not necessarily in our situation, but in God's salvation. Let's pray. Father God, help us know your love. No matter our situation, open our hearts to see how big your love is. That you would reach down and rescue sinners. May we be overwhelmed by the love you show in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. By your spirit, help us be confident and assured in your love. Amen.